0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, France, immigration and the EU. And Richard, we just this weekend before we're recording this conversation had the first round of the presidential election in France, and the top two candidates who emerged cut very different figures. This gentleman, Emmanuel Macron, who's this sort of relatively inexperienced, young centrist, and then Marine Le Pen, who's been the president of the National Front, although she sort of symbolically stepped down from that uh, in the past couple of days and has represented a force for heavily reducing immigration into France and also for holding a, a referendum as she's pledged within the first six months of her tenure if she's elected to pull France Out of the EU. Let me just start with sort of your general thoughts about the binary here, about the choice facing the French voters.
1: Well, I think if you actually looked at what the other nine candidates did, it will give you some sense as to the way virtually everybody, but Miss Le Pen and her hardcore supporters, think, which is all of them essentially uh, took Marcan and decided that they would endorse him. And I think that that's exactly the right thing to do. I mean, my hope is that what has happened in France is that she will be regarded now as a marginal figure notwithstanding all the stuff with ISIS, and that when the French start talking about hiring an inexperienced politician who's been an investment banker, the word growth will start to come back into their internal agenda. Uh, The good news was, I think, that the socialists polled something around 6% in this, um, and then there was some other left candidate whose name I repressed who did fairly well, and that the other sort of center-right candidate uh, did not do as well as he might have done precisely because of all the difficulties associated with his personal Circumstances. So uh, the stock market went up about 400-odd points in the last two days, and it wasn't because of anything that happened on the American side. I think it's a sense of stability. Now, this is even more complicated for another reason. Uh, It's quite clear that the French are not in any short term going to pull a Frexit to match the Brexit. Uh, But that's not what the key issue is. It's going to be how is France going to play things out in terms of two things. One is influence in Brussels, where I think they will now become a force for slight moderation, of these endless... You know orders and directives that come out of Brussels to nations to do. And secondly, notwithstanding the fact that the EU has a lot of influence over a lot of things, uh, local governments and local nations have some discretion over to what they do. There's nothing about the EU that requires France to have a 35-day work week if anybody ever enforced it. And if this guy can start to change that, you may see a change in the calculus. If you see a change in the calculus and you start to improve growth, what will happen is the level of political alienation a nation of disaffection, which seems to be very powerful in that country, might start to subside. So I'm reasonably encouraged by all of this. And I also think as a final Philip, if this guy is as smart as I think he's going to be, uh, what will happen is the Brexit negotiations may go a little bit easier uh, than they uh, had been expected to go uh, before this election took place.
0: For our listeners who might not be that familiar with the domestic arrangements in France, when you talk about galvanizing economic growth, what are some of the policy variables that the next French president is going to need to focus on? What are some of the big needs in terms of kick-starting the French economy?
1: Oh my God. I mean, they do some things very well. They do pretty well on running their trains and running their nuclear powers. But this is essentially a country where trying to fire somebody is about as difficult as trying to rob a bank and has the same degree of welcomeness. There are all sorts of very oppressive labor kinds of regulations in there. Um, If you start looking at their education system, it's much too monolithic and it doesn't turn out the kinds of people that we want. Um, And it also turns out that there's a kind of really deep gulf in that particular country between the rich and the poor which is reinforced by their educational system, and they have to be able to open that up. And in general, what the French have to do is, like everybody else in the EU, they have to make pretty clear that people who become successful through innovation and imagination will not be treated as social pariahs. There's an interesting figure, I think, that some of my friends, a man named Jesus... um, Uh, Fernandez Velarde told me he said there is not a single major corporation that has been formed in the EU in the last 30 years that's still in business so that means there's no Google there's no Facebook there's no eBay there's no Amazon Um, you start running a country which can't uh, grow small countries into big countries you have very serious kinds of problems and the French have to get away from the notion that simply because you're a great intellectual who can speak four languages uh, that hating markets is somehow or other a viable process. They have to become more market oriented in virtually everything they do, and they have to influence the EU to move in that particular direction as well.
0: Richard, there's been a tendency with Le Pen in France in the same way that there was with Brexit. Um- Victor Orban, I mean you could sort of go through the list, but every time that there's sort of the slightest populist instinct in European politics, there is a tendency among American pundits to draw the analog to the Trump phenomenon in the United States. Is that is it too facile? How close are they?
1: Well, I mean, it's very, very complicated because uh, one of the questions is, which Donald Trump are you talking about? The man has had some serious ups and downs. Many of his policies I've defended. I think his character and temperament I've attacked, and some of his policies I think are terrible. Uh, But the worst and the most grotesque of these comparisons was the notion that somehow the British, when they decided to vote to pull out of the European Union, was pulling an isolationist uh, maneuver. There certainly were isolationists in Britain who wanted to pull out, but Theresa May, I think, has been the most skillful politician I've seen in a long time and her approach to the EU to try and make sure that you keep the NATO ties, the World Trade Organization ties try to keep as much as special privilege alive as between the two nations shows in fact that she has a very strong free trade uh, sentiment and that the dominant forces behind Brexit were maybe not correct but certainly were laudatory. Uh, There was a sense that too much power was being shifted into the hands of an opaque European commission uh, subject to the occasional veto power of a weak European parliament, which nobody had much faith in. Uh, the directive system is extremely powerful. People didn't like that. Uh, people in England were upset about the fact that it was difficult for them to enter into trade agreements with other Commonwealth nations because they had to get EU approval and also went to the United States, so they were worried about that stuff. And also, they were worried about something which I think everybody has to consider seriously. Internal migration within a very large EU of 28 nations is a very difficult thing. And the freedom of persons is a much more difficult question to answer in a large organization uh, than is the freedom of move capital and the freedom to move goods and the freedom to move services. And I think the British wanted to have greater control over their borders. This is a very contentious issue. Uh, but my own judgment is that the EU became so big that it was unworkable as a firm. And what you had to do is to break it up and then try to get other kinds of relationships. And that's what I think uh, Miss May did. Now, the Frex, situations, a little bit more complicated, because what were the motivations of Miss Le Pen? Going, putting France back on the franc is not such a terrible thing. I think the euro in general was a very, very bad idea. The one-sentence version of this is you cannot have a single currency in a world, right, in which it turns out you have 28 different fiscal policies, because the two things have to work together, and they don't. And so I think, in effect, that sort of Cutting back on the EU, even within the framework of non-withdrawal of membership, is probably a good thing. And if the new leadership in France is willing to do that, uh, so much the better.
0: Richard, you mentioned immigration in the context of the British election. Let's talk about it in the context of France. Our regular listeners will know that you deviate some from a lot of people who define themselves in the American context as libertarians in terms of how you think about this as as a policy matter. This does seem to be one of the central anxieties in France right now. It does seem to be one of the real catalysts behind uh, the Le Pen campaign. What, what's the right way for France to address this going forward?
1: Oh, but the question is, what is one supposed to do about the immigration issue? Well, the first thing I think that everybody has to do is to recognize how incredibly difficult it is for anybody to solve, even if you think yourself to be somewhat libertarian. Moving goods back and forth state lines does not create questions of what you do about crime taking place in a country, what you do about education, how you work about housing, what you do with welfare rights, um, what you do with voting, what you do with conversion to citizenship and essentially my attitude is generally to be sympathetic to immigration but to understand the need for the control and also to recognize that the refugee problem is distinct from the immigration problem it's already clear that Germany has taken in too many refugees for it to accommodate comfortably the internal attack on Miss Merkel has been very great the level of crime moving up there isn't very high refugees are particularly tricky because they tend to be mainly men mainly between 20 and 40, mainly people who are going to be more likely to do difficult and complicated things than if you had families which are more stable uh, coming around there. So I think that she's right to play or to recognize that this is a problem, uh, but there's got to be some way to accommodate this um, which is a mix between Miss Le Pen's overt hostility to all immigrants and the, and the, and the, and the, situ- the situ- situation of Miss Merkel who's trying to, to let too many England, uh, so you cannot handle it. I, you know, My own view is if you get people sitting around the table trying to figure out what kinds of quotas start to make sense, that might be helpful. Another thing I think you should do for the immigration, particularly for the refugee problem, is since we created so much of this by our passivity in the Middle East, is that you invest some really substantial hard dollars so as to make sure that they're livable and humane refugee camps that could be created somewhere in the Middle East uh, so that the migration could be weakened in an effort to allow the equilibrium to start to be restored. But uh, you look at the American American situation and the only kinds of immigration plans that you see are those which are extremely complicated that nobody's quite sure which way they're going to leave or they're going to be extremely draconian which leaves many people, myself included, very very uncomfortable and what's wrong with Miss Le Pen is she just pushes too hard on something like this which needs a more nuanced approach and I mean I actually remember once when I was on a trip to Galapagos there was this German couple and I thought World War 3 was about to break out uh, because of the differences between them on the immigration question. I mean, you really had to flee the room. One, the woman was strongly in favor of more immigration. The man was strongly against it. And you can see just the level of tensions multiplied by that level. Uh, so first, got to lower the temperature. And then what you have to do is to look for some kind of a compromise deal in which at least part of the problem is going to be handled by money rather than by immigration. I think the open immigration solutions, which may have a certain kind of abstract philosophical situation cannot work in the face of mass movements led by desperation, which is the sort of thing we have in the Middle East today.
0: You mentioned earlier the sort of various incarnations ideologically and policy-wise that we've seen of Donald Trump over the past year or so. One of the areas where he shifted tone quite a bit is in relation to Europe. I mean, the noises that he's making about NATO right now, much more accommodating than the kind of things that he was saying on the campaign trail. On that front, with major European powers, countries like France, how should Trump be thinking through these relationships?
1: Well, I think the first thing he has to do is to strip himself of all illusions uh, that there's a decent bone in the body of Vladimir Putin, or in terms of Russian's intention. You know, the idea that somehow or other he thought of himself as the same kind of cosmic world transformative figure that Putin is, was one of the most dangerous and objectionable things about his campaign. Well, he's been burned now, and he's been burned multiple times. It's not just a question of the difficulties and the perfidies that are taking place in Syria. There are recent stories now that it turns out that the good Russians are sending arms into Afghanistan to the Taliban in order to approach us. And we have to assume that any time we're on one side of any particular issue, the Russians will, in one way or another, be on the other side of that issue. And the good news, quote-unquote, from this is, I think that the European nations themselves now understand that relying on the good intentions of Mr. Putin to keep peace in Eastern Europe is not going to work, and they're going to have to basically bolster their defenses. The 2% target is a massive increase, but it's still absurdly low relative to the kinds of threats that they're saving. And that having a strong American presence in Eastern Europe and having the Western European nations move in there as well is probably something that could be done. Remember this about Russia. It's a failing economy. The truckers are on strike. Uh, The average age of men is falling fairly rapidly, women less so. The economy is about the size of Italy in terms of its total production. I've been told I think that's probably correct. This is not a nation that could sustain a long war. So what they're doing is they're playing a huge game of bluff and once you know that then what happens is you just don't cave to the kinds of bluffs that you see and you start to take a relatively hard line to them by putting yourself into places so that if they want to come. West in Europe, they're going to have to run into American and other uh, kinds of forces against them. I think the time in which you can have any illusion about good intentions with respect to the Russians is completely over. I think Trump now understands that the difficulty with NATO is in, paradoxically similar to the difficulties that you have with the EU. When it was a North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, there was more coherence. Now, as you admit more members, it's much more difficult to keep the organizational thing in equilibrium.
0: So the last thing I'll ask you, having seen Great Britain leave the European Union, seeing this – you know, some measure of discomfort in France, probably not enough that it's going to boil to a critical mass. But um, when we consider it in prospect, Richard, what are the two or three main variables that you'd point to that are going to be determinative of whether the EU can sustain itself long term or not?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, what they have to do is to cut back on the situation of Brussels power. Um, it may not be a formal change in the law, but I think what happens is the commission, as it starts to bark out these orders, which other nations have to comply with, has to be aware of the political dynamic which will lead people against them. Already, there's a sense that there's an inner club based on the original six or 12 members, and the rest of the place is not so loyal. The next thing I think that one has to do is to recognize that the lockstep progression inside the EU doesn't work. There's a movement which has gotten some support from time to time called multi speeding, which means, in effect, that the relationships that all EU members have with each other need not be cut from the same cloth. Already, Norway, for example, is no longer a part of the EU, but it has an affiliate arrangement of some kind. Things like that might ease the need to try and get the right rules from the center and allow for a a little bit more flexibility. And this could easily be a case of either a bend or a break. Um, my own view about the EU is when they started to put together the integrative functions, uh, both through the treaties in Lisbon and so forth, where they have really aggressive kind of comprehensive regulation of what's going on. And also when they put the euro into effect, uh, they went a bridge too far. I'm much more comfortable with a free trade zone in which currencies can move relative to one another than I am with a harmonized situation where harmonization tends to go left rather than to go right. And so the difference in the size of the EU is a function of its mission. And this is a case of going a bridge too far. And it's not that they're going to be able to reverse it. It's very difficult to do that. But if they can slow down the increase or actually reverse the flow even a little bit, it would improve, A, the economic performance inside the EU, and it would also, I think, reduce the probability of breakup.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and it's at definingideas at hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution.
1: For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.